Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. We are going to move into uh, today's message, and I entitled it Mirror, Mirror. And basically what we're going to do is look at how we see God, how we see ourselves, and ultimately how that affects our behavior, uh, including our worship. Neil Anderson is best known for his writings on how finding our relationship and freedom in Christ can overcome the bondage of brokenness. In his book, Who I Am in Christ, Neil says, The most important belief we possess is a true knowledge of who God is. The second most important belief is who we are as children of God, because we cannot consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with how we perceive ourselves. This is basically the skeleton of today's message. So the key is for us to have a true knowledge of who God is. The key word being true. My wife, Melinda's cousin, uh, posted something on Facebook last week that made me laugh. And I think this particular status update is going to calibrate our, uh, basically how we view that word, knowledge. So Mel's cousin's in a uh, college philosophy class. And a question was posed, can you know that the earth is flat. Her classmates, thinking the question was easy, said, "Uh, no, because I've seen pictures from outer space that show it is round. Apparently, they missed that they were in a philosophy class. But knowing the earth is flat is knowledge. Knowing the earth is round is true knowledge. We can have knowledge of God without it being true, which is why Anderson emphasizes a true knowledge of God, because our knowledge of something impacts how we see it. Our knowledge of God impacts how we see Him. A true knowledge of Him allows us to see Him more accurately. So if our knowledge of something impacts how we see it, and what we know about it uh, impacts our expectations. Let me explain that. Again, our, our knowledge of something impacts how we see it, and how we see it impacts our expectations of it. Have uh, any of you ever taken a class that you realize later on accidentally prepared you for something that probably wasn't its main goal? And maybe uh, you're an accountant and somehow you feel your middle American history class really helped you for life as an accountant because it taught you about early American industry. Well, for me, that class was popular culture. Uh, Believe it or not, we didn't sit around reading Teen Beat or anything like that. Uh, But it was one of those courses I took that really prepared me for vocational ministry and for teaching because it, it showed the class, it showed us how we receive things through media and how we end up viewing things because of it. So how we dress, how we act, our perceptions, even how we value art and literature and history. Naturally, television is thought by many to be the catalyst that created popular culture as we know it today. TV changed a lot of things, everything from how people spent time together to how they ate. I mean, can you imagine a world without TV dinners? And it also changed the speed at which information was shared. It was true mass media. In other words, the same media being put out to masses of people. Although print and radio were around long before TV, TV yoked print and audio media to an active visual. And it also came at a time when the economic climate was different and changing due to World War II, which made the circumstances of how society embraced it different from how it embraced print and radio. So Carl's going to show you a chart. This television really started making its way into the American home following World War II. 
and then most dramatically into the 1950s. So for the sake of math, using that 1950 as a starting point, let's say that TV has been in the average American home for about 63 years. And for most of those 63 years, the average household had limited channels. So no cable, no dish, certainly no Netflix or Apple TV. And again, that was true mass media. Today, we have massive amounts of media that we can pick and choose from, kind of piecemeal, but not limited media presented to the masses. But the dawn of television was the dawn of society seeing every social issue differently. Let's take a look at one in particular. That would be smoking. When we see commercials about smoking today, it's always against it, right? Always uh, someone with a trach saying, if I knew then what I know now, or it's a tongue-in-cheek witty teen mod squad out to like dump their boyfriends for dipping tobacco, right? But it didn't always used to be that way. I mean, I personally helped my dad cut the UPCs out of his cigarette packs to send away to Camel for that custom two-piece pool stick, like Bad Bad Leroy Brown, you know? But most of that PR from tobacco companies has been banned since then. But if we go even farther back, there used to be things like this on TV. I love that last pose, don't you? Yes. <laughs> this is delicious. No, but how about it? You know, uh, doctor recommended. We have similar commercials today for mouthwash and chewing gum, and it will blow our minds if in 10 years we figured out Listerine gave us tooth cancer or something crazy. But at that time, that was the attitude toward smoking. It felt good. It was fun. The charming doctor on TV said it had medical benefits. This original portrayal is actually something we still fight even though we know the danger. We had knowledge from a seemingly credible source, and it set expectations for what smoking would do and feel like. I think of those smoking commercials when I hear people talk about their struggles with God. Do you remember how God was first portrayed to you? Maybe it was an introduction of fear or as a mysterious force that guided mankind. Perhaps he was portrayed as an oppressive rule enforcer. Josh McDowell wrote a book several years back called Don't Check Your Brains at the Door, exposing myths about God, Jesus, and the Bible. He gave all the myths witty titles like the Cosmic Cop myth or uh, the Father Christmas myth. Uh, I personally uh, like to combine them to the Cosmic Santa myth. Uh, so let me ask you this. How was God portrayed to you again? Loving and personal or a Cosmic Santa? Somebody far off, somebody distant. This is important because our knowledge of something shapes our expectations of it. Again, knowing the earth is flat is knowledge, but knowing the earth is round is true knowledge. In either scenario, you have the earth, but in one scenario, if you travel too far, you're going to fall off the edge. Our knowledge of something shapes, then, our expectations. And our expectations then shape how we interact with it. So apply that same reasoning to your relationship with God. Maybe you're sharing God with someone who's struggling with his or her knowledge of him. How are they viewing him and why? Using Neil Anderson's quote as a roadmap, we're going to take the next 21 minutes to calibrate our knowledge on three things. One, who God is. Two, who we are. And three, how we worship. So who God is? Well, God is love. Throughout the Bible, we hear a lot about love. The New Testament says God is love, the original. And First John does a really great job explaining this. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible or the passage is going to be on the screen, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7, and, uh, 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So here in this passage, our faith really begins to take shape. Even if we have never heard the gospel before, we can look at this passage and begin seeing what separates us from other faiths. Verse 7 says that love comes from God and that everyone who loves God has, or loves rather has been born of God and knows him. So this love has to be different than the love that the world teaches, right? We've all been burned by that love, by the love of the world. So what's special here? Well, look at verse 8. Whoever does not know love does not know God because God is love. And that's huge. It answers our question that there has to be something different about God's love versus the love that the world teaches. But it leaves us with another question. How do we even know what this God-like love is? Well, verses 9 and 10 clear that up. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So godly love then, by its very nature, is sacrificial. Godly love ascribes worth to others at a cost to ourselves. God doesn't love us because we loved him first or frankly did anything for him first. He loves us because he has given us value at a cost to himself. So how do we show this love? Let's look at verses 11 and 12 again. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Another translation puts verse 11 like this. Beloved, if that's how God loved us, we ought to love one another in the same way. Beloved, a.k.a. we who are loved, If this is how God loved us, by sending his son to die for us, then that's how we are supposed to love one another. We can't die for everyone like Christ, but we can have that same type of love, that love that ascribes worth to others at a cost to ourselves. In the book, The Early Christian Letters for Everyone, N.T. Wright concludes that we don't really know who God is until we look at Jesus. We then can conclude that People aren't going to know who Jesus is until they experience love like his. So when we collectively, as a body of believers, love in the way that Christ loves, we make a more complete picture of Christ for people to see. The second truth I want to share with you about God is that he is triune. And this second truth really sheds more light on the first and explains how God loves. So everyone knows that all good sermons have three main points and a C.S. Lewis quote. Uh, I have three points. Let's sprinkle on some Lewis. Uh, in Beyond Personality, C.S. Lewis writes, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made... He was not love. So like N.T. Wright said, we really don't know who God is until we look at Jesus. Jesus is God's love on display. And Jesus told us when he left the earth that he was leaving with us a friend, the helper, the Holy Spirit, like we just studied in our last series. 
So then I want you to look at this next verse with new eyes. This is the gospel of John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. The Trinity has been around since the beginning, and even though this idea of three in one is kind of hard to grasp, it does something uniquely beautiful. Like Lewis claims, saying God is love means nothing unless God contains at least two persons. The Bible tells us he contains three. This essence of Christ-like sacrificial love, ascribing worth to others at cost of self, has been happening since the beginning within the Trinity. Ross actually described the Trinity like this on Palm Sunday. The easiest way to describe the Trinity, God is three persons in one, is instead of, uh, oh, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they've been honoring and glorifying one another since the beginning. But what does it mean then to glorify each other? It means instead of centering on me, I center on you. Instead of revolving around me, I revolve around you. God has been doing that within himself for all of eternity. Lewis describes this as a constant dance. So knowing God is love is knowledge. Knowing how God is love and how he loves and how we should love like him, that's true knowledge. And leads us to our next point of who we are. We have hopefully established a little more true knowledge of God. So who are we as children of God? This whole idea of being children of God is sprinkled throughout the Bible, saying things like born again or having faith like a child. And like we read from 1 John, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So we go back to the blueprint. God is love. He shows it through Christ. We then see a true image of God and his love because of Christ. And then this leads us back to the essence of God loving within the Trinity. That there has been the value ascribing love since the beginning. Now, I don't personally know Neil Anderson so well. We're not like poker buddies or anything like that. But I don't think it's a coincidence when he says who we are as children of God. He doesn't say who you are, but who we are. Think about that for a second. Because the world teaches that loving means ascribing worth to ourselves and that you love someone because they ascribe worth to you. As soon as the goody train leaves the station, though, it goes somewhere else because you deserve better. But that is love by the world's standards, not by God's. The world teaches, I love you because. I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you provide for me. I love you because you're fun to be around. But when those things are gone, see ya. Can you imagine if wedding vows didn't originally come from biblical roots, but instead of roots from worldly love? I wrote some sample vows. <laughs> I thee wed until death do us part or until your hotness falls from a 9.8 to a 7.6. Unless, of course, your income is 60% higher than mine at the time of hotness dilapidation. In which case, you'll be granted a hotness exemption. Deduct two points for each off-putting in-law and or annoying sleep habit. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200, right? That's pretty much what it would sound like. The world teaches us that type of transactional love in which we end up exploiting each other. We ascribe worth to self first and, and find people to love that are going to do that for us. So what does it look like then to have that Christ-like love and ascribe worth to others? And it's hard because we live in an age that tells us to be genuine, that if we don't feel it, that we shouldn't do it, that we are hypocritical if our actions don't match our mood. Personally, I feel like it's because historically we've been taught this principle of fake it till you make it. But when that principle is applied to loving others, our red flags then go up. Don't do that. It's not genuine. 
If you feel something, do that instead. I feel both of these ideas of fake it till you make it and being real are just flawed attempts to describe the truth we're talking about today. We are to love as God does. And a love like that ascribes worth to others at cost of ourselves. Remember the passage we hear at Easter, you know, where Jesus is in the garden and he's praying that, you know, to let the cup pass from him if there's another way to let it happen. Let's assume that Jesus didn't feel like dying the most gruesome of deaths for us at that moment. But we know he did it anyway. And there was nothing about what he did that was fake or without love. It was totally real. So what does that look like then from you to other people? I have an example. One day I was working at home instead of going into the office. And to preface this story, you need to know something about my wife, Melinda. If I'm in a room with her, she's going to talk to me. Uh, Whether it's necessary or important or not, uh, she's going to talk to me or show me cat videos on Facebook. Um, (laughs) Either way, it keeps me from the task at hand. So I'm sitting at the kitchen table. She comes downstairs. She smiles at me. She quietly works in the laundry. She asks me if I need anything and quickly heads back upstairs. A while later, she comes down and makes me lunch. We eat together. And then when I turn back to my computer, she asks me if I'm going to start working again. And I tell her yes. She says, if I don't go upstairs, I'm going to talk to you. She went upstairs. Sometimes love that ascribes worth to others is that simple. And sometimes it isn't. But the point is, you're not expecting anything back. And when you're on the receiving end of that love, the value you feel is unmatchable. So in all reality, identifying who we are as children of God is largely dependent on how we're treating each other. The essence of this love, this love that, of God that sacrifices and ascribes worth to others, it's makeup, it's DNA, works in a synergy. We're not going to feel this love, we're not going to feel this sense of identity without sharing it. We don't fully grasp our identity in Christ unless we're loving like He does. Like we read in 1 John, by that love, we make his image and his love complete. So, so far through seeking a true knowledge of God and who we are as children of God, the central piece has been love. And it really should be no surprise as the New Testament uh, it consistently highlights love. Even if you haven't been to church much, you've probably been to a few weddings and heard a bit of 1 Corinthians. Uh, you know, love is patient, love is kind, on and on and on. But the piece of that that I want you to apply is that without this love that we are talking about today, all the greatest things, all the best intentions mean nothing, even our worship. Worship, in following our Anderson quote, is one of those many examples of us behaving in consistency with how we view God and ourselves. So how we worship. When we talk about the songs in a Sunday service, we typically refer to it as worship. That word over the years, though, has turned into that title more than a description of what's actually happening. Worship itself really just means to ascribe worth. Sound familiar, right? Love, Christ-like love is ascribing worth to others at cost of self. We do that when we love like God loves. Worship shows adoration. If worship were just a song, it would be a love song. But worship today has somehow turned into a sermon buffer and even a musical genre. If we wanted to be more accurate about the musical portion of a service, we would actually say praise and worship. Praise being the celebration of God and who he is and what he's done and worship being the more romantic piece. 
The phrase, though, praise and worship kind of got held hostage in the 80s and 90s, and we've put that era of classification on it. For example, whenever I hear somebody say praise and worship, I actually think of this clip. Both kinds. Country and Western, both kinds, praise and worship. Next time somebody asks you what type of music we use at Quest, tell them both kinds. Uh, Let me know their reaction. But how true is that when we think about music in the church? We have this uh, self-defined box it stays in, and that's all there is, both kinds. What we do, though, is we then attach our musical taste and preference to it. And when that taste or preference isn't being met, we then hold our worship hostage. When we have knowledge of something, we start creating expectations for it. When we have expectations for something, it shapes how we act within it. We can't consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with how we perceive ourselves. We also can't consistently worship God in a way that is inconsistent with who he truly is. And the inverse is also true. We can't consistently worship God in a way that we don't know him. So our only criteria then for worship should be love and truth, Christ-like love, and a true knowledge of who God is. I really started to become um, convicted about this kind of young. I I was 13. I went on my first mission trip. It was the first time I had been away from home that long and and doing that type of work, and uh, the first time being in corporate worship with just people my age and the leaders, you know, hundreds of kids shoved into a hot, smelly gym, Uh, but with a really awesome band and, at the time, cool frosted hair tips, you know, on the guitar players, right? And and that kind of idealized worship for me, and I loved it. I was out of my comfort zone. I was able to engage in the moment because I had no idea what to expect. But nobody really taught me how to come off of that spiritual high. What do I do after a trip like that? Well, so over the next year, I started romanticizing those events, I made everything that was awesome even more awesome in my mind, and anything that was remotely bad or not fun was totally dropped from my memory. So by the time I went to my next trip a year later, I had these expectations that were not only unrealistic, but they were also romanticized. I got there, and I wasn't able to engage. I I just kept constantly, constantly holding up going, but it was like this this one time. And I really felt it like this this other time, and we should really do it more like this, and the guitar player should really bleach his hair some more. You know what I mean? But that was what was on my mind. And until I finally said, I'm going to try to come at this fresh, treat it like it's my first time, that was when I started to experience the worship again. So like I said, our only real criteria for worship is love and truth, Christ-like love and a true knowledge of who God is. Now, music or worship wars have divided churches over the years, right? Organs versus guitars, traditional versus contemporary, arena rock versus folk rock, and all those things are great. But they themselves do not make love or truth. These are just tools. I recently read a book by Gary Molander. He's the uh, the founding artist behind a floodgate productions we use a lot of their videos here at quest and uh, in his uh, book pursuing christ creating art he opens with this idea and historical recap on photography versus painting and before photography became a big deal painting was not just there for the art that was how you captured family portraits that's how you captured historical events that's how they were lived on forever 
But when photography came along, all these painters and people who were close to painters got in a hissy because they thought, oh, no, here it comes. We're going to be obsolete. Has painting gone anywhere? No. So is it true, then, that maybe a painting of a tree could tell more about a tree than just a photograph of a tree? That there's something to that artistic expression? And in that same regard, is it true to say that we could experience more truth about God through a song that is sung about him rather than just the words alone. I consistently pray with the worship team that our music be tools, that it's effective mediums of God's glory to break the human condition for just long enough to unleash the evidence of God's truth and love in the congregation. So is the music itself important? Yes. But that is where you need to trust worship leaders like myself and Sean and Daniel to mold and shape musically what we think will most effectively communicate with Quest as a whole. And the same is true for any church and their leader. It may not meet your expectations musically for worship all the time. Maybe you want more of something or less of something else. Maybe you went to a worship service once at another church that you really loved and you wanted to look, smell, and feel that way here or somewhere else. Or maybe you get upset when it doesn't look, smell, or feel that way anywhere. I'm not saying this because I feel uh, that I have naysayers, if you will. And like I said, last service, if you are, this would have been a prime opportunity to bring your rotten produce with you because I'm up here for an extended amount of time, baby. That's, that's how it's going. But I feel like that's something we struggle with. I've struggled with it. It's something that people leave churches for. But whenever you feel those feelings or know somebody who's feelings, feeling those feelings, ask this question. Is the music speaking truth and love? And are you just dissatisfied with the art that it's packaged in? Art itself impacts us all differently, and perception of beauty can be just as relative. So focus on the love and truth when you're feeling those challenges. Maybe another time I'll get into the nitty-gritty about uh, my views of art in the church, but for now, let me wrap up the core truth of worship, or both kinds, praise and worship. If we perceive ourselves as children of God, who have been given sacrificial love, and we pour that love out to others and to God the way he has shown through Christ and through the Trinity, our worship will naturally reflect that. Don't fake it till you make it. Don't not worship because you don't feel like it. You can know true love, that love that glorifies God and others. And maybe that knowledge will make you want to raise your hands and shout. And maybe it'll make you want to sit quietly and close your eyes. Whatever it may be, do it in response to who God truly is. Maybe you're still kind of figuring out who God is. And if you're seeking that, if if you're here with questions, well, you're at least intrigued by this idea of God, or you're a really good friend if somebody's been badgering you to come, right? But ask yourself, what do you know about God from others or your past experiences or just like we saw with that smoking commercial media? How's God been presented to you? Has that been a hurdle for you to get in these doors and sit in this seat today? My challenge for you is to engage, even if you have questions, to allow for him to meet you there, meet you here. As Sean and the band come back up, I want you to try as many of these things as you can. I have some challenges for the coming weeks, if you will. The first thing I want you to do is really explore your misguided perceptions, your smoking commercial view of God, and see if that's affecting your love and worship. Is your world flat or is it round? When you see someone you know or even you don't know, instead of making a quick judgment of them, bless them. 
and ascribe that love and worth Christ has given to them in the same way he has given it to you. That'll really clear up how we see ourselves as children of God. Number three, use conditioner in your hair before you shampoo, uh, and then email me the results. I just, I'm just curious. If you're not catching those jokes, that's how fast they're coming every time I'm up here. <laughs> I just feel like some of this gets a little deep, and we need a comic buffer, mostly because I get nervous. But I do have two more legitimate things I want you to think about. Ask yourself if you're faking it till you make it, or abstaining from worship because you don't feel it. How's that affecting your relationships? How's that affecting your worship? And lastly, invite someone to worship at Quest. Tell them we have both kinds of music. In this time, uh, for those of you who've been with us for a while, you know we've kind of changed up our uh, service order, and we're going to do that again today. We're going to have a few songs here at the end that Sean and the band are going to lead. And uh, at that time, too, there's going to be myself and some of the other staff and and prayer folks coming down to pray with you. If you have something you want to pray about, maybe it's something that you've... uh, felt working on you today or maybe you came in here with some needs and some desires or you just want to share with us you're more than welcome to do that at this time but i'm going to ask that you really do your best to engage that you overcome self that you overcome your original perceptions of god and who he is and who you are and the reflection of those poor perceptions to be able to encounter him here at this time so please stand and join with us in worship Our God is great. He is worthy of our praise and for us to reciprocate this love that he shows us. And I hope that uh, through my passionate ramblings this morning, you're able to focus in on the, the truth of who God is is found in the love that he shows. And we see that through Christ and we see that exemplified through him and, and through, the, through the Trinity. And if we decide that we want to find out who we are in this God, then we need to understand that love. We need to understand that we're not going to fully experience that love until we share it with others. And that is a love that ascribes worth to everyone else around us at a cost to ourselves. And I promise you, that type of love coming from God to you and you back to Him and you to all these other people, that will totally change how you worship. It'll change your life, but it'll change how you worship too. So I ask that... uh, You'd be praying about that this week. And that if you're still unsure about who God is, and like I said, you came here because you're a really good friend, and somebody asked you enough times, just really think about that. How has God been portrayed to you? And maybe if you've had this relationship with him for a long time, how has he portrayed to you? How are you still hurtling over it? And if you have those things that are keeping you wrestling with this identity, then I ask that you have somebody to pray for you. And uh, any one of us would be happy to do that for you. Fill it out on a Connect card if you want. But, uh, gosh, Quest, you're a great group of people. And I love talking to you. I love singing with you. I love these guys. I love all you. Jeez, you're great. (laughs) So I want you to be a blessing. And I want you to understand that love. And I want you to feel that love and that truth of God and who he truly is. Be a blessing. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.